0: Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dimitri Kaligan. Here we are with our first public, free World War Now classic analysis episode where we dive into World War III here in 2024. So we hope everybody had a fantastic new year. We hope everybody celebrated the birth of Christ, whether they're on the old or new calendars. Those have both passed at this point. So a blessed theophany to everybody as well. And we're back in it. 2024 has not disappointed. We are On the cusp of a regional-wide Middle Eastern war, which would effectively be World War III for every Normie, not just World War Now listeners. So we're going to be diving into Gaza. We're going to be diving into Russia, Ukraine. There's stuff going on in East Asia. Mount Athos is condemning El Piroforos. You know, all sorts of things are happening in the Red Sea, Somalia, East Africa. You know, this is going to be a truly worldwide episode. So, Dimitri, how are you doing? Are you ready to hop into this?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's been a really good Christmas weekend for those on the old calendar, and you know, just getting back to the Middle Eastern news. Right, we have unfortunate news from the 25th of December as well as the 7th of January. Uh, Church attendance in Israel has been down in terms of Israel and Palestine. So, especially Catholic Christmas, well, the new calendar Christmas on the 25th of December. Yeah, reports from Bethlehem and the West Bank area says essentially stated that you know Bethlehem. There's all these news stories that Bethlehem was a ghost town. Nobody was attending church, and essentially that's because. Not only is Israeli police really out to persecute people, search them on the street, there's all kinds of terror threats, essentially probably artificial, like people are claiming that there's Palestinian terrorists everywhere, the Israeli media, that is, uh, you know, the scare tactics are working full force. So it's essentially a return to a COVID type regime. In, in the Holy Land itself by the IDF and the Israeli government you know led by Netanyahu so very unfortunate that Christmas like that is spent in the holy in the holy places where Christ you know the the Son of God was born um, but naturally the war itself has been expanding beyond Gaza and we've kind of predicted this that eventually after a few, After a few months, all the sides will need to choose how, you know, how essentially involved they are and how invested they are in this particular conflict. And At this point, investment has gone a little bit overboard, especially for Israel, which has begun assassinating the leaders of these foreign groups, not just those belonging to Hamas, but also the neighboring Lebanese resistance group in Hezbollah. So I think that's probably one of the biggest stories, because essentially for all of us, I guess, regular followers of the news, listeners, it's like, well... If you assassinate an enemy leader, this would lead naturally to an escalation and the enemy, you know, it's essentially two enemies finally, you know, you assassinate an enemy king or you take a queen in a chess game, finally something gets really, really serious. But no, the IDF sees differently, Conrad. So the Hezbollah leader naturally was... Assassinated, and an IDF spokesperson comes out during a press conference and states. So his name is Hagari, and he states, of course, to Western media, um, Washington Journal and New York Times says that the war of Hamas and Hezbollah has shifted to a stage of less intense combat. Especially, he calls it a special. it's, it's there is a switch. To, from intense maneuvering to special operations So Israel of course is proud of its assassination tactics Of these foreign leaders And leaders of Hezbollah, leaders of Hamas And they're stating that this is in fact For the better, you know The war will improve and there'll be less war crimes Or they won't be called war crimes by Israel They'll just be called, you know parts of, parts of the war against terror But naturally for us I think it's quite obvious That as soon as you assassinate leaders of Hezbollah and Hamas Things will only get worse
0: well, I think it's clear for everybody in America and the West that had to see their uh, military units, their young men sent to the Global war on terror that the Global war on terror was actually just the Global war on Israel's enemies by the Western militaries and we're seeing that happen now and of course, you mentioned the West Bank and Gaza at Christmas time it, it was just on Christmas a few days before and during that uh, Zionist settlers and officials came and set fire to the Christmas tree in the, in some of the major Christ, Christian areas in the West Bank, so of course the terrorism and anti-Christian activity was, was increased. Again, you didn't see this kind of, It's always... It's much more statistically often that it is the Jewish settlers and the Jewish figures than the supposed radical Palestinian Islamists that are doing these sorts of things to the Christians in the region. But yeah, Dimitri, you mentioned these assassinations and this has... Unfortunately, the bombing in Gaza still continues and the West Bank raids have continued as well. There have been bombings and everything there despite the fact that Hamas doesn't effectively operate in the West Bank, at least before any of this began. And now... We're seeing these assassinations, the Hezbollah has been dragged in, of course, their operations along the border have dramatically increased. They've sent much larger, much bigger missiles and strikes at some of these villages that have taken out, they they took out this entire radio facility right on the border with Lebanon. So things are increasing on the northern front, but these assassinations, you mentioned the Hezbollah figure, there's three other major figures that have been taken out here, and I'm going to read them in order here since they've been assassinated all in the past two weeks. Uh, We have the Syrian leader of the IRGC and their aligned militias. Again, in Syria, this is somebody who is effectively considered a successor to Qasem Soleimani, who was killed by Trump in 2020 by the U.S. military in a strike. And remember, Qasem Soleimani is probably the most responsible person of any individual for taking out ISIS in Iraq and Syria and in these areas. And we're going to get into ISIS's role in Iran in a second. But this assassination was huge. It really angered the Iranians, of course. It was it was by Israel, by the IDF. And his name is General Ravi Musavi. And there's been the big. They always do the big funeral for these guys. They consider martyrs like the biggest heroes in all of Iran are these military generals. And then, of course, a few. Uh, I think it was a week or so later. This was done by Israel. The U.S. denied any involvement. Said that you know they even. Even Netanyahu said that he didn't know Israel had done it, despite Israeli intelligence and diplomats coming out and saying, of course, it was them. But the Hamas political deputy, the deputy of the political bureau of Hamas, so basically the second political in command of Hamas, Sahal al-Aruri, he was uh, taken out in a strike in a Hezbollah-owned kind of dominated neighborhood in the southern region of Beirut, the capital of Lebanon. This was a, you know, Israeli airstrike. And This was a dramatic escalation because Israel hadn't operated its planes that far north in Lebanon during this conflict yet. And it was so dramatic that even the, you know, the Lebanese government and some of these officials that have been up to this point denouncing Hezbollah almost exclusively for, you know, supposedly dragging them into the Gaza war at the behest of Iran, they had to denounce Israel, say that Israel needs to watch itself with Lebanese sovereignty. But we know Lebanese sovereignty means nothing to Israel. Lebanon is entirely within greater Israel, so they want all of the Muslims and Christians there to get the hell out. And of course, after Sahel al-Aruri was taken out, a few days later, the leader of the Iraqi Shia United Front, Mushtaq Jawad Qasim al-Jawari, so, you know, Qasim al-Jawari, he was taken out by a United States operation because he was the one responsible for this united Shia front across Iraq that had been conducting these strikes on Syria and Iraqi US bases all around the region to the point where it was... That was probably the most dramatic escalation against the United States specifically was the Iraqi Shia front, of course, supported and funded by Iran. But the Iraqis have really responded to this, even the Iraqi government, which effectively is the legacy Iraqi government established by the United States after Saddam Hussein was overthrown. They want the U.S. out. They want no more U.S. bases. Of course, people have taken to the streets Iraq. It's like their own Qasem Soleimani moment, basically. Every Shia person in Iraq and even some of the Sunnis, of course, at this point that are standing in solidarity with Gaza – They are not happy about this. So the U.S. has never been less popular in the region. If it wasn't for the United Arab Emirates, the U.S. would be completely pariah in all of these Muslim countries. So it's very interesting to watch. Of course, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the Houthis, they all come into play in East Africa, which we're going to talk about later in the show. Really, really interesting show we've got here today. But as far as the Houthis go, again... They are also escalating, and the fact that a Houthi leader wasn't in these, this list of assassinations proves that perhaps they're better at protecting themselves than, than they might admit, and it's a lot harder to strike internal uh, Western Yemen than the U.S. would have us believe, because they've talked about having these strikes on Houthi leaders, but everyone's being very careful about that.
1: Well, I think, yeah, also it's the just the geography and the skill of the Yemenese Houthis from actually evading some of these strikes and these high technological assassination attempts, which, mind you, Saudi Arabia has attempted on them for almost decades now, right? Because that, that war has been happening for a while. And they're very, I would say, the Houthis are probably as skilled, if not more skilled, than the Taliban were in Afghanistan after you know two decades of war. So it's essentially very similar terrain, very mountainous. They have mountain strongholds. And these people are very robust. They don't need... And they don't have the excesses of the Western world. They don't need to eat much. They, you know. They're very pious Muslims, essentially, so they adhere to their laws and morals, and essentially they live in order to free their country from Western intervention and from the, I guess, the Saudis who are essentially who they see as invading foreigners. And so this particular event escalating for them wouldn't even be that big of a deal, frankly. And if anything, as, as we say, like all these news stories are saying that, well, de-escalation needs to happen, and Blinken is traveling all around the Middle East, essentially playing, uh, uh, playing the de-escalator, right, the General Secretary of the U.S., Secretary of State, that is, and essentially arguing for Biden's administration that the U.S. doesn't actually wish an escalation in the Middle East. But we're seeing the opposite. We know who is behind these ISIS strikes in Iran. We know who's behind moving all these battleships into the southern Red Sea in order to defend Israeli interests. It is the United States, which is very unfortunate for U.S. servicemen, sailors, people like that. But also, of course, unfortunate for the U.S.'s image across the Middle East proper because the U.S., as you said, is losing its ground in terms of you know, morality, ethics, and just how the rest of the world views it. I think the best example would be, well, Russia, most of these BRICS countries, Russian, Russian, Chinese media, and Iranian media have already for almost a decade reported that ISIS is the creation of the U.S. State Department, the U.S. You know, military-industrial complex, essentially, similar to Al-Qaeda. So they've been reporting this for a while now. There's been news stories. RT has essentially a documentary on this, Right and suddenly on the 3rd of january a giant isis suicide attack kills close to i mean at this point it's close to 100 people um officially 91 people in iran and you know, president raisi visits the hospital there's all essentially it's it was such a deadly suicide bombing by isis persons in iran and you'd think like why are Muslims suicide bombing the, uh, other Muslims? Well, essentially, the ISIS Islamic sect is very different from the Shia moderate Muslims in Persia, Iran. And which, as we can see, I think, mate, this is not really conspirological, uh, Conrad, but you know the US, I think, views Iran as supporters of the Houthis in Yemen, and it wants to punish them by sending in these Israeli Mossad CIA-trained ISIS suicide bombers essentially into some of their most, you know, I guess populated cities and blowing themselves up. I mean, this is as dirty as you can get in terms of proxy war tactics, and uh, you know, it's it's very sad for the Iranian Persian people. And we've seen similar strikes in you know from Ukrainians as well, again supported and trained by U.S. government forces, sending in terrorists to carry out the, these bombings in Russia. Not as deadly, but still just as disturbing. So I think that's. Morally, that's where kind of the world stands at the moment. We're just watching the US and its various different proxies act with without, with essentially impunity around the world, conducting themselves in any capacity. But for the Houthis, I would just say that they're standing strong. I don't think the Houthis can be scared into submission at all. We have to treat the Houthis like the new Taliban. In terms of world news, these people do not care about high technological strikes. They don't care about your ships, aircraft carriers, uh, planes flying overhead. They really Do not fear anything at this point. These are all battle-hardened, essentially Islamic warrior monks. (laughs) I don't know what else to call them, but these people are about as skilled in terms of guerrilla warfare as anyone in the world today. And so I think that's where the US is very hesitant in order, you know, in terms of actually committing to this particular conflict. And it's kind of just resorting to defending that Red Sea, those Red Sea straits. But as we've said, as long as the US keeps its sailors, troops, ships in that area, they are potential targets. And also, of course, there's also the potential for some sort of black swan escalation, some false flag strike, you know, take out a U.S. ship, turn it into a World War III type scenario in the region. And, you know, moving along, when we do move to countries like Ethiopia and Africa, again, adjacent to that particular area, who knows what kind of scenarios they may be planning, you know, essentially involving U.S. sailors and servicemen there.
0: No, it's completely accurate. And you mentioned the ISIS attack. People need to remember ISIS exists effectively to punish and wage asymmetrical warfare against the Islamic enemies of Israel and America with the Islamic front to it. It basically then adds to the PSYOP of the fact that, you know, every Muslim country is a supporter of terrorism. And at any moment we need to launch our own war on terror against them, which is just a translation to at any moment, any Muslim country can become a threat to the state of Israel. That's what it really means. And this ISIS affiliate, ISIS-K, ISIS-Khorasan is actually the affiliate that operates outside of Afghanistan and has directly been waging war against the Taliban and the Taliban government, even before the Taliban took over officially in Afghanistan. So, they're already fighting the enemies of America. They were already acting as a proxy, and they have sex in Iran as well. Obviously, as they border Iran, and so is—is is it the fact that anybody's falling for this is crazy? I don't know if anybody is falling for it. To be honest, everyone seems to be understanding what's up. But suddenly, the United the Islamic world is united. Even Sunni countries are supporting the Houthis and not disavowing them. I mean, see Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia doesn't want to restart the war that they lost against the Yemenis at this point, and they realize that the popular will is with Gaza, so they're not trying to stir the pot right now. And suddenly, out of nowhere, ISIS is back, and suddenly Assad is going to have to deal with ISIS again in Syria. Apparently, the Russians and the Syrian Arab army have been seriously engaging Daesh activists back in eastern Syria again. Again, this is it's very clear that this is not some kind of organic Sunni radical population that just is fostered over the course of a few years and re-emerges. It's an intelligence spook operation that rises up whenever the Islamic enemies of Israel get too united and get too together to then suddenly, oh, radical Wahhabism comes in and it's the Shia-Sunni split all over again and there's asymmetrical warfare being waged within Iran and Bashar al-Assad has to re... Again, the civil war in Syria still hasn't ended, right? It just They just keep dragging that thing on because they know that Assad is a powerful actor in the region, and they can just—they need to just prop up some people. He needs to fight and distract his forces and the Russian forces there at any given moment, and not give them a ceasefire, not give them a treaty, not give them the official victory that they effectively already deserve. But yeah, I mean that's the whole thing with ISIS and, and the Houthis. I think we could probably transition use that as a trend. I don't know, I mean we'll talk about Hezbollah as well. I mean because Hezbollah Nasrallah, like you said, Nasrallah fully stated that you know at this point we're you know entering a new stage of a battle with Israel and that these assassinations, you know, will be met in kind. So I think, I don't know who a figure would be. So I think we'll move on to East Africa right after this, Dimitri, unless you want to hear your speculation. Like if they try to go tit for tat and actually do some assassinations, like the Israelis have done assassinations to them, like, who are we talking here? Are we talking like high level generals? I guess I'm not well versed enough in Israeli military brass to know who might be an equivalent here. But it seems like that would be likely. Obviously, the Houthis are going to try to use their missiles just to do whatever they can because they're so far away. But between Hezbollah and perhaps forces in Syria and Iraq, I mean, are we going to see an attempt at a targeting of some of these Israeli generals or Israeli officials?
1: Yeah, here's the thing: it's 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 a mix because Israeli generals are, you know, for all their sort of cowardice, actually attacking children, bombing children in Palestine. A lot of the generals are actually on the front lines. There's a lot of the Israeli officers are actually serving more or less around Gaza in that area, not actually going in. They're sending in, from what we've seen, uh, not that many officers have actually been killed from the Israelis. It's mostly these uh, young Israeli conscripts who are being sent in. I'm not sure what what, the, what exactly the spiritual significance of that is, but they are sending mostly young Israeli men and women into the Gaza Strip to fight these battle-hardened uh, Hamas warriors who actually have something to fight for, their families, their children, their land. And they're the ones who are being genocided, So obviously, they're on the back foot and uh, somebody on the defensive fights a lot stronger and harder, and you know, someone who's desperate. So, But essentially, striking these generals would be quite difficult, I think, in terms of long range missiles, simply because the Israeli uh, air defense systems have, as we've seen, are very, very effective at, you know, taking out any of these Houthi, Hezbollah, Hamas missiles flying long range. So it would have to, unfortunately, probably take... And, and again, this is probably not very characteristic of the Palestinian people in general, but if they would strike, and if this is what Nasrallah was talking about, you know, are we talking about potential military-esque type terrorism, right? Like assassination attempts of that particular sort, or what what we've seen the Taliban perform in Afghanistan when they were trying to strike US bases. I mean, they got so desperate at some points, they were actually utilizing, unfortunately, suicide bombers, things like that, which is, you know, we can't really condone that ever. But that's just very, um, hopefully it doesn't get that, desperate although you know from what we've seen like this is the the devil is at work here in the holy land in terms of you know as uh no, no pun intended like these this country is controlled at the moment by netanyahu and his satanic government so in terms of the actually the violence escalating to a point where it gets quite disgusting from both sides and i can't really fault i mean i can fault the palestinians but you can see when there's all these demons active in the area that potentially something like that could start taking place so let's not be surprised if we see stories again this could be uh, you know, speculative here, but these could, be, these could be false flags as well. So moving forward, I think Hezbollah will try to take out some significant Israeli targets, definitely, especially Israeli generals. I'm not sure about politicians because, again, Israeli politics, as we know, the Knesset is deeply divided. It's, it's, quite, it's quite the octopus of, you know, congl- it's a conglomeration. And frankly, a lot of the politicians in Israel proper are actually anti-Netanyahu. The only reason he's in power is because of the war itself. So essentially it's, it's not like you can try and assassinate a Israeli politician who's anti Netanyahu. It's most of them are, I mean, pro Netanyahu, most of them are actually against him, so to speak. So it would, there's not really any clear targets there besides some of the people, like some of the open people who've spoken out literally and may genocidal phrases like the minister of defense, for example, the prime minister Netanyahu himself. So again, very interesting potential there for the Palestinians, but again, really, um, savage battle i mean it's been a few months now we're moving on to the fourth month for the, the third month of the conflict and it's it's getting quite quite rough i think for everybody living in there and involved
0: i agree and again the hamas fighters keep dropping more i mean they're the iconic red arrow videos now you know what the gopro footage is is shown and then it's paused and it shows the explosion on the merkava tank or on the bulldozer or whatever it is and there's a whole lot of those videos so it's very clear that the the fighting is is very intense and it's not just a israeli bulldozing operation per se because obviously all the the city's been leveled and brought to ruin by airstrike but within those ruins and within those places and under those tunnels are are jean and old navy clad hamas fighters with their with rpgs and landmines and things that are really giving the idf a tough time right now but we got to move on to the Horn of Africa, I think, unless we may, we may circle back on a few things. I was going to say, as far as the assassinations go, I think Itamar ben Gavir, like you said, he might, he might want to watch his back. That would be a big morale and propaganda victory for, for the resistance and anti-Zionism. So I'm sure he's watching his back, watching the sky for missiles and whatnot. But I think uh, going towards East Africa, the Houthis, again, they have said that they are ready and effectively already at war with America. That's that's what they effectively said. And they've prevented Maersk and effectively 10% of world trade from going through the Red Sea and the energy, so this is it's a big deal. And right across the Red Sea, some pretty interesting developments are happening. Of course, Eritrea, Ethiopia, we discussed the saber-rattling from Ethiopia about possibly invading Eritrea for access to the sea. We talked about how Djibouti has been rejecting Ethiopia's lease to get access to the sea from their port, which, you know, they're very... US aligned, although in Djibouti there's big US and Chinese bases. So the allegiances in East Africa are very interesting to watch. But Ethiopia, a country of 120 million people, largest landlocked country in the world by population, needs access to the sea. So what do they do? Well, what has happened recently is the breakaway country of Somaliland, officially the Republic of Somaliland, which is, it's the entire, think of Somalia, it's the entire uh, northern part of Somalia that doesn't have the Indian Ocean coast. It's the entire place that lines up with the Babamandeb Straits and the Red Sea. That little region is a breakaway part of Somalia, not connected to the capital of Somalia, Mogadishu, they claim to be their own government, and now have been recognized by Ethiopia and are giving Ethiopia 20 square kilometers or square miles of land for 20 years on this lease for this recognition And I think Ethiopia is giving the mistake in like Ethiopia Airlines or something like that. I don't know, very high level, you know, private sector, government recognition, you know, uh, diplomacy here. So so a very interesting development. Of course, I've known about Somaliland for a long time because if you go to Somalia for quote-unquote tourism or whatever, you go to Somaliland, it's like the actual safe place, the like country that is, you know, the country that's somewhat not a war zone and a failed state where you can walk around. So it makes sense at this point that it has been recognized by somebody. But again, the government in Mogadishu, they they have their support as well, like they've been supported by Egypt who has a big problem with Ethiopia due to the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam and their damming of the Nile. It's a whole complex thing. But Egypt and the Arab League have come out in defense of of Somalia and the central government in Mogadishu. So as of right now, you know, Somaliland is the new country on the rise right now. It doesn't seem like it'll be getting worldwide recognition anytime soon. But Ethiopia, I've heard the UAE and some other places are willing to recognize Somaliland. So this is a big development. But Eritrea, of course, I'm sure is, again I think, against this as well as enemies of Ethiopia. And then this ties in the whole Israel thing. Because remember, the Houthis attacked that Israeli Eritrean base on those islands, and blew up the big Star of David. So I'm wondering if this somewhat puts Ethiopia in the anti-Israel camp. But at the same time, there are the Ethiopian diaspora Jews that live in Israel. There's some that have even died in the Gaza War. Some of these, I can't remember the name, the black African Ethiopian Jews that have been allowed into Israel. But yeah, no, the whole East Africa region has definitely been, it has its own interesting politics going on, as well as the fact that it's been dragged into the, Israel conflict due to the range due effectively to the technological range of medium range missiles that the Houthis have they're now prox they're, they're now in the range of conflict of the Israel Gaza war
1: yeah, I think it's really interesting that you mention that because Ethiopia may be the most theoretically philo country in all of Africa. If only Israel wasn't so, I guess, Ashkenazi supremacist, Then, if only it let Ethiopians, I suppose, travel or have pilgrimage to Israel you know, quite easily and hand out visas, things like that. I'm sure Ethiopia would be a potential Israeli ally, but at this point, the sort of Jewish supremacist vibes that Israel has been putting out for the last few decades and essentially just the anti-African, anti-black sentiment of the Israelis has, you know, has kind of distanced the Ethiopians away from them. But Ethiopia at the moment, yeah, in a very strenuous position until literally recently when, again, this deal with Somaliland has begun. Essentially what this would mean is Ethiopia could build new railroads leading into Somaliland so they could export and import goods from these new Somaliland ports, which I'm guessing will take about five to 10 years to build on Somaliland territory. But again, this lease can be extended. So it's not just the first 20 years. You know, this can go on all the way into the 2100s, Right. This could be something that can be centuries into the future. It's eventually maybe a Somaliland could even join in Ethiopia and sort of build this confederacy of sorts, you know, allowing for free trade into the Indian and Red Sea areas. But again, very important Ethiopia landlocked. Djibouti is not really an option. Ethiopia can't militarily expand Djibouti. Why you'd think it's a such small countries? Well, it's because both, you know, two military not super well, not superpowers, but very really major powers, China, France, Yeah, and and again, the US, right, a proper military superpower all have bases in Djibouti around the port area. And the port in Djibouti at the moment, I think it has something like 95% of all Ethiopian exports. So Ethiopian, if Ethiopia mines any goods, you know, essentially any raw materials, uh, farming goods, they're all exported by by the major railroad from Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, all the way to the Djibouti port. So 95% of all exports actually go for Djibouti, which is surrounded by foreign military bases. So they make sure there's no fishy, there's no weird activity from Ethiopia in terms of foreign policy. Ethiopia will never be able to militarily pressure Djibouti, that's just not an option until, you know. Maybe a World War Three breaks out, or something. Things get so um, so crazy in the world that perhaps a move can be made. But naturally, Eritrea again very strange conglomeration. Eritrea would you'd think geographically it should be a part of Ethiopia in order to allow the Ethiopian and Eritrean people both to participate in this Red Sea, Indian Ocean, Mediterranean Sea trade. But again, Eritrea almost artificially has been disconnected from Ethiopia, so it's not surprising that the Ethiopian government moved you know thousands of troops. 200 kilometers away from Asmara, the capital of Eritrea, just in the last week. And essentially the troops are standing there, similar to how, well, the guy we'll speak about very soon, I think, Vucic. Uh, early in 2023, he moved and surrounded Kosovo in almost this half-crescent, and his forces were all on the border, essentially pressuring the Kosovo government into making certain pro-Serbian decisions, right? But again, Ethiopian troops are, are standing outside of the Eritrean capital, 200, you know, 100, 200 kilometers away, but we've seen through the Pregosian revolt how these distances can be crossed quite easily, especially if there's proper freeways and highways available. So really, really positive developments, I think, for the Christians of Africa, Ethiopia being the largest Christian country, which, you know, they claim themselves as Orthodox, but we know they belong to that Coptic monophysite faith, so not exactly Eastern Orthodox like the Russians or the Greeks. Still, nevertheless, this access to the sea is a lifeline for Ethiopia. It wants to disconnect itself from that. Uh, from that tube of Djibouti surrounded by foreign military bases and kind of actually diversify. I think this is the, where diversity uh, actually would be an improvement for Ethiopia, connecting itself to both Somaliland and possibly Eritrea. But we'll see exactly how that takes place. And naturally, if Mogadishu's Somalian government are protesting, because, like, well, how can Somaliland be recognized by Ethiopia? It's essentially, you know, they treat Somaliland like a Kosovo, essentially just an unofficial state. But what can Mogadishu do, right? What can Somalia, how can it protest? It won't go to war. It doesn't even have a proper army. I mean, it has its own piracy issues. We've all heard about the Somalian pirates on the coast of Africa. Like, They have their own internal issues. There's no no time for them to actually bully Ethiopia into not recognizing Somaliland. And Somaliland is the, I suppose, the civilized region of Somalia, if you think about it. It is the place to be. And the Ethiopian Christians, I think, uh, understand that. And they want to make deals with Somaliland that will bring prosperity to both the, these peoples. So that's essentially, I think, where we stand. I think definitely great development without any war, right? It's like, wow, we can actually, if Ethiopia if can, can, can get access to the Indian and the, Red, and the Red Seas without any warfare, I think that's a positive, like it's a real lesson in diplomacy for the entire world.
0: No, I agree. And you mentioned Serbia, which I want to get to because we... Spoiler alert, everybody, we just forgot to talk about it last World War Now episode. That was that was just a mistake, which sometimes it happens. There's just so much going on, so certain things slip through the cracks. But you mentioned the pregosian thing briefly, and I want everyone to listen to the latest episode of Ether Hour. We give our 2023 reflection on all of the biggest things that happened and our 2024 predictions. You know, at the very end, we make some pretty bold predictions, I'd say. So get behind the paywall, click the link. It'll be down below, whether you're here on Substack or on YouTube. Click that link. Get behind the paywall, get the free trial, and you'll be able to hear our 2023 retrospective and our predictions for 2024. And some of them are pretty, pretty big about elections, about war with Iran, about you know potential Israeli stuff and like that. So tune on in. But to uh, to finish out Africa before we get to Serbia, we got to talk about Sudan. The leader of the Rapid Support Forces, the the Russia-supported militia group that is uh, kind of taking over Sudan and been winning more battles against the American-supported Sudanese government. The leader of that, he's been on a bit of a tour around all of Africa, and I think it was the pre- some office in South Africa accidentally tweeted out calling him the president of Sudan, and that had to get deleted, so, you know, all sorts of controversy, and the diplomatic naming of things there. But... Yeah, it seems that he's really gaining popularity in eastern and southern Africa, which again just goes we talked about Sahel region and a lot of the progress that Wagner and the Burkina Faso Mali governments have made. So really all across Africa, the the Russian influence, the multipolarity is is what's rising and the US influence and the former colonial uh, Western European influence is totally waning. But unless you have anything on Sudan or Africa Dimitri, I think we can we can talk about Serbia because there was, you know, of course, Vucic won re-election, but in the midst of all of that, there was the Serbian J6. I mean, that basically happened,
1: right? Yeah, essentially massive, um, you know, riots and protests in Belgrade, accusations that the voting was, you know, there was a, there was scams locally in all, in all these various cities that the votes weren't counted correctly, right? We're essentially seeing what took place in the US between, in the last election between Joe Biden and Trump. And again, this is like, you know philosophically speaking it is democracy coming coming to an end around the world people are realizing that these liberal democracies between you know with millions and millions of people vote and not just not just monetary bank big corporation type lobbying essentially makes the entire pro, uh, you know make, makes the entire project illegitimate but also the fact that simply you're going to need to use really efficient and proper software to actually count these votes, and essentially ballots are either made up or the you know the software actually miscalculates and things like that. And there was definitely accusations of this in the 2023 Serbian election here. And you know the Vučić's party winning is not really surprising because Vučić has. I think he's um, balanced quite well, I think, over the last year. And despite us not being fans of Vucic, right, mind you, we still think he's a liberal and he's pro-EU, but Vucic has balanced between the patriotic strong position and this like left-wing, oh, Serbians really just want to be part of the EU. They want to be part of the civilized, you know, Western Western community, which, I mean, I'm sure some Serbian Zoomers and millennials especially do want to be part of that. And, you know, they want all the modern things and uh, visa-less travel to the EU, things like that, and all these benefits. But naturally speaking, civilizationally and culturally, Serbia is very different, incredibly conservative. And I think those who actually care about Serbia's Serbia's future want to continue down that route, which the conservative parties in Serbia certainly do, despite not winning this recent election. But the Serbian parliament actually is starting to look a bit more like the Knesset, like Vucic's party does not have a majority. It didn't make over 50 percent. So still won the election. But still, let's just consider the fact that it is turning into this factor of perhaps a Conservative coalition or a right-wing fund, you know, right-wing perhaps reactionary coalition in the future in Serbia could win some sort of electional majority if if naturally they can get their act together. And this is of course if we consider the fact that democracy will continue, especially after things get hot in the war. But yeah, naturally the protests were. Very interesting. I didn't see many participation from Serbian Orthodox clergy. I think most of them were probably because, you know, it's nativity fast, right? So uh, I think most of them were probably at church or preparing for Christmas, things like that. But the Serbian lady are really up in arms. They really don't like this democracy meddling. And I think they don't like democracy as it is. They think it's a bit of a fraud. I think the Serbian people are monarchistic in their hearts. You know, still remember their thousand-year legacy, and Vučić meddling with elections and possibly using foreign technologies in order to uh, possibly fake votes. I think is uh, has really frustrated them.
0: Well, I'd be careful about buying into some of these narratives because the group Serbs Against Violence, I'm pretty sure, it was the Western-backed, you know, pro-America faction that totally, you know, didn't win. And then I think it's funny that they're the Serbs Against Violence yet immediately you know, did resort to violence in the, again, and I'm, I'm in favor, I support the J6 patriots and whatnot, and I'm not saying I'm against all forms of, you know, expression of protest, but it's just funny that they were all, it's all this like anti-aggression, you know, we have to, you know, I think they would want to recognize Kosovo and things like this, and that brings us into the fact that Spain, you know, the strongest supporter of Serbia's recognition over Kosovo, they have effectively, they've effectively conceded and said they're not gonna recognize, I think, Kosovo passports or something. They're not gonna recognize Kosovo officially, but it's very much a step in that direction. So I don't know if Vucic is ready to sign some deal with, like, you know, Serb autonomy in Kosovo and he's really he's really pushing for that EU membership, which I really just think that gotta see the writing on the wall here and look at Croatia and some of these other countries that recently joined and see that this really isn't going to be the miracle that you think it's going to be to save your country. That's that's what I can say about that. But the main real thing happening in the serbosphere is Serbska, where milorad Dodik has you know effectively pledged that within this year or next year there's going to be actions that happen and he's going to have to declare independence from bosnia and herzegovina and we were just looking at this article right before we started recording there's a us fighter jet they're set to fly over bosnia in a sign of support you know as the serbs call for secession succession and this happened there was some bomber that flew in some bosnian independence military parade but i guess this is just a full-on, I guess, indication that, you know, Dodik could be risking another, you know, Yugoslav region war if he decides to go through with what he's doing. But again, I don't know if this is his attempt at pushing, putting pressure on Vucic to not recognize Serbia, to not recognize Kosovo. I don't know if, of course, I believe that it's genuine in the sense that Bosnia is not working and that there shouldn't, the Bosnian government can't properly govern over the Serbian population. I agree with that, but I'm wondering what the what the real politic is here? What the deeper what the deeper understanding would be?
1: Yeah, I think people really need to be wary of 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 course any anti government protests, especially who's leading them, right? And I think that that was a big indication. You mentioned correctly that there were groups NGOs involved, which were definitely U.S. funded, who were involved in these uh, in these protests, which I think is important. That's why probably we didn't see many clergymen actually on the streets, right? It's like it's like okay, where where there's an absence of actual clergy, people who stand up for their rights, people who name them. People who you know actually speak the truth. It's it's usually it's usually a sign that the movement perhaps is not as organic, but nevertheless, I think Serbian people definitely are pro- like frustrated. Just as I'm sure some of the people you know protesting in some of these other coloured revolutions are later collected into these you know massive walking. Balls of of you know just clumps of people these are, you know so called in the communist terminology frustrated proletariats who go down and tear things up but again who controls this collective sentiment I think is very important to keep in mind like the Georgian protests as well the recent you know the color revolution they attempted in 2023. Serbia does not want a Maidan because what will happen in Serbia, you know, during a Maidan is is really not good. I think the Serbian people have come together over the last two decades over what has happened in Yugoslavia. You know, separ- you know when Serbia was separated from some of its other lands and Republic Srpska, we speak, we keep speaking about Dodik and but the Bosnian Serbs who still want reunion with their, you know, uh, compatriots at home and, Mont- and Montenegrin Serbs naturally as well. So Serbia really needs to keep its head straight. And if people like Vucic are, again, assisting in promoting some of these protests, I think it's just not doing the nation any any good. Because, again, if, if the U.S. suspects that Vucic will turn against EU interests at any point, they could start a Maidan against them. So it, there's all kinds of pretexts, and it's a very difficult game the Serbian uh, elites are playing here. They really need to be careful not promoting anything like what happened in Ukraine between, uh, you know, in 2013-2014. Again, giving the U.S., and an ability to turn Ukraine into essentially what was a liberal corrupt state into a complete hellhole, which, which it is right now. And it continues to be, unfortunately. So that's just one of the, I think, primary considerations in Serbia, not turning itself into, you know, this, this conjoined ball of politics. And, you know, there's the two F-16 fighter jets that which will fly over Bosnia. That's just a provocation, right? I don't know if any, anybody lives near there, any um, military bases or military airports but when these f-16 bombers actually fly overhead they make an incredibly loud noise it's not like commercial airliners who fly really high up in the sky and you don't barely hear them no these f-16 fighters will be heard over whichever area which whichever suburbs they fly over and it's essentially a huge provocation they're going to wake up animals they're going to wake up babies this is um, naturally a show of strength from the u.s claiming that look The US is still this massive octopus with its tentacles in various regions, not just in the Southern Red Sea, but also in the Adriatic and in that Yugoslavia area. And it's saying that, look, the world is still controlled by a hegemon, right? There's still this one world power. It's still a unipolar world. We're not completely in this area of multipolarity yet. And even the small conglomerate of, uh, you know, Bosnian Serbs who want to break free, they're not entirely, you know, free to do so, no pun intended, because... The US is still involved and it still guarantees so-called Bosnian sovereignty, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I think there was something I forgot to say this on the predictions episode, but I think I did say that I predict Bosnia to stop existing, just like I predict Canada in the next twenty years will probably stop existing. Maybe I'll maybe I'll get into that in more detail on a different episode. But the uh yeah, Bosnia is not long for this world as as a country, of course. And again, like we said, Vucic, he's you know, one, he, he still risks being the cuck of Kosovo for that. That could be his legacy if he makes the wrong play here. So we're, we're watching him closely, of course. But unless there's anything to say in uh, in Serbia, we got to get to this Russia situation. And of course, I guess a good place to start about these advanced strikes and some of this news is that I think it was over a week ago now, maybe, can't remember the exact dates, but Ukrainians struck Belgorod, killing 13 civilians. Two of them were children. And they also did a few other strikes at a few other places that targeted civilians. And this really, you know, angered the Russians, as there had been somewhat of there's been somewhat of a stalemate across the front line, no major movements from either side. The rumors are, of course, that Russia is preparing for a large Kharkov counteroffensive, which I think is, uh, or rather a Kharkov offensive, which I think is is likely. And of course, Denis Pushilin, the uh, head of the Donetsk People's Republic, he basically said that it's time for Russia to correct the mistake of Odessa, Nikolaev, and other port cities being under the Ukrainians. So we're really getting a very clear picture on the minimum future territorial gains in the map that we're going to be seeing. But as far as I can tell, Demishu, the Russians really responded in kind to this Belgorod attack.
1: Yeah, they haven't. I mean, the the Belgorod attack was so destructive and so heinous. I mean, I can't even describe this as a military strike because it was essentially just a strike upon civilians. It's what Israel... Funny because it's what Israel has been doing to the Palestinians and it's funny because the same people that control Ukraine essentially control Israel. We've been saying this for a while now and it seems like a bit of a meme, but it isn't because when you see essentially the strikes against civilians, they're very, very similar. In in Belgrade, they essentially just struck a, a civilian street, and this is like um, on New Year's Eve. Essentially, you know, killing uh, ten people, injuring fifty to sixty people. You know, the metropolitan of Belgrade, John, has been visiting them in the hospital. Essentially, staying with them for an entire week, only disconnecting to go to the services on Christmas Eve, and essentially almost living at the hospital. You know, with the which is very commendable. Like, sorry, obviously, metropolitan John puts himself at risk. Even staying in Belgorod city. Belgorod famously was always a border city of Russia, essentially, especially when uh, Ukraine was mostly controlled by, you know, Crimean Tatars and all these other people, Uh, especially during the Mongol horde days. Belgorod was always like a borderline city and somehow historically it's returned to this position of being this uh, default on the sort of outskirts of the, of the Russian state, which is very unfortunate for the people there because naturally it's been hundreds of years since they've had to play that particular role being the borderland city. But very unfortunate the Russians have retaliated very heavily. So the new year's bombings uh, all over Ukraine have been some of the most severe. So, you know, Air raid alarms have been signing off bomb alarms essentially all over Ukraine. Uh, some energy targets have been hit all over the outskirts of various Ukrainian cities as far as Lvov. So essentially, you Russians have been bombing key targets and trying to avoid civilian deaths as well. Now, there was some footage of like one or two civilians, uh, U- Ukrainian civilians taken to hospital. And of course, Ukrainians have been parading those clips, but it's nothing as bad as what the Ukrainians have done in Belgrade, where they've literally bombed just the civilian street, killing 10 plus people injuring 60. You know, it was just very heinous. And the Russians, again, even though this it was literally a, you know, an attempt to provoke a reaction from the Russian government, the Russians, I think all of 2023 twenty have seen this, they've not taken the bait. They've not responded in kind. They've not committed any any of these war crimes which the ukrainians have have attempted to provoke russia into doing especially with the uh, various terrorist acts we spoke about earlier and this bombing now which is probably one of the worst bombings we've seen i think excessively so and so russians instead have retaliated with very very powerful even some hypersonic strikes on some targets are military storage targets are always always getting struck by Russians, but this time hitting those energy targets, especially during the heart of winter, will you know be almost as effective you know, against Ukrainian morale, especially, f- which they're trying to force the Zelensky government into at least a temporary peace deal here as well. We have to consider Zelensky is not interested in any peace deal. So this bombardment by the Russian Federation is trying to at least bring some sort of stalemate, at least before Great Lent occurs, so that we can spend this Easter period before summer in some sort of peace. And at least both sides can kind of get together and maybe sort out a long-term peace treaty or at least draw some sort of border. But Zelensky has been ordered by people like Boris Johnson and the U.S. State Department to continue the war and continue killing his people. So this naturally will continue to escalate the unfortunate war that has begun almost two years ago now.
0: And, of course, Russia hit Kiev, Russia hit Kharkov, some of these major cities which haven't been hit as much recently, were covered in smoke, all sorts of critical Ammunition and infrastructure areas have been struck. Some of these were from missiles launched from the Black Sea Fleet. So this is, again, it's pretty crazy footage seeing the missiles launched from the ships. It's really a monumental level of technological warfare we're seeing being engaged in. But at the same time, we're seeing the Ukrainians literally burn, and their activists in the street burn down the houses of bishops, Metropolitan Longin. You know, Bishop Longin, his uh, house was burned down. We've, we've seen other persecutions increase. You've seen, like, I've seen multiple videos across Ukraine of different parishes with troops, you know, but the, where the prisoners are trying to hold the doors closed and these uniformed men are storming in and crawling over the people and pushing grandmothers effectively out of the way. It's it's, it's horrible things to see. So, again, as much as we want this war to end, uh, what we really need is for Russia to decide that it needs to end on the battlefield and with these strikes and and through movement, moving forward. And so the Kharkov counteroffensive is interesting, and, of course, we've seen the defenses hold in Kherson and Zaporozhye, and some movement happen in Avdivka. But I think Kharkov, considering that was the, those were the territories that Ukraine ended up successfully taking back with their first offensive, it would make sense that those would be the first ones to be reclaimed by the first major Russian offensive push since, really, 2022. And in the midst of all of that, though, we like I said, Pushilin made those comments about Odessa and Nikolaev and these other places. Uh, Russia is also, you know, continuing to obviously Putin has had a lot of these diplomatic meetings with all sorts of people. Even at this point, it's kind of the fervor of the immediate diplomacy after the Gaza war has somewhat subsided, and we're seeing pretty interesting statements like Kazakhstan affirming that Russia is its like closest ally, which I think marks a bit of an end to a sort of dispute behind the scenes in Kazakhstan. We remember the coup right before the coup attempt or whatever, right before. The Russian SMO started in Kazakhstan in 2022. I think it was January, and you know we have uh, Tokayev in power, and I guess there was a behind-the-scenes struggle with Nazarbayev, one of the the former president. But it seems that Kazakhstan, you know, is still firmly in uh, the Russian sphere of influence, and at the same time, Russia is collaborating with China, and the trade is just is really going through the roof. We're seeing more and more pledges. We talk about this in our Ether Hour about BRICS and its rise, but the pledges towards non-dollars between China and East Asia and Russia is is really growing here. And unless you have anything to say about those specific uh, smaller news items, we do want to talk about the Korea situation because, ironically enough, you could make the joke that, you know, the Russia-Ukraine war, actually a Korean proxy war with the North Koreans funding uh, the Russians with their ammo and the South Koreans, because the South Koreans, more than Western Europe, and even in some ways, I think some months, even more than America, I believe is like the number one provider of ammunition to Ukraine. are the South Koreans, and that's interesting because in the midst of all of this, the escalation in rhetoric and even action from North Korea towards South Korea is is pretty strong. I believe it was the Yeonpyeong Islands. Uh, North Korea fired 200 shells on the islands, and those islands have 2,000, you know, South Korean citizens on them. The school that was there had to evacuate. All of these things have had to happen, and this comes in the midst of, there was an assassination attempt on the a less pro-American, like I think the more pro rapprochement with North Korea candidate. He was stabbed in the neck. He's going to be fine, obviously, but he was stabbed in the neck during a rally. And this is in the midst of the huge birth rate crisis in South Korea. Uh, Seoul itself has a 0.5 child per woman birth rate. The entire country is about like 0.75, whereas North Korea is almost double that, if not more than double that. So and even then Kim Jong un is like crying on camera trying to get women in his country to have children. So the the tensions between North and South Korea is, is really growing. North Korea has, you know, rattled the saber at America and South Korea. And again, these are the two most relevant ammunition suppliers in the in the war in Ukraine. So it's a very, very interesting development. And and again, this firing on this island I think marks a marks an escalation. I think it's a more dramatic escalation than just firing a missile over some islands or over Japan. I mean, the one firing it over Japan is dramatic as well, but actually h- hitting an island with shells, I mean, that's pretty that's pretty dramatic.
1: Yeah, and like people shouldn't really exaggerate like the island wasn't that populated, but the sounds from the explosion actually hitting the uh, unpopulated side of the island caused such a stir that you know, and naturally everybody went into evacuation stage and this was this was like a big deal I think for the first time North Koreans have hit a South Korean territory with live ammunition, right? So it's 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 a really big deal. And they continue to bomb the sea around the island as well, kind of essentially in this big show of provocation. North Korea, we have to remember, is militarily as, if not stronger than South Korea in terms of number of troops, the training, the morale, naturally higher birth rate. And technologically speaking, Russia has been, and China, frankly, has been bolstering the North Korean forces quite strongly. So the only thing South Korea is standing for it is essentially what Taiwan has standing, uh, you know, standing in for it against China is... The support of the U.S. and the, the you know the entire show and for a few weeks we've been speaking about the fact that the U.S. needs to essentially keep its thumb on these various pulses around the world and could it really sustain such a widespread uh, you know network of destabilized areas and zones? I I don't think so, especially if, if things get somewhat unstable at home especially coming into the late 2024 period and you know in our prediction episode you know we will speak about the taiwan china situation going into 2025 that's when things i think will really get will really heat up and i think north kim jong-un understands that and if if china ever strikes on taiwan and goes into some sort of amphibian operation you best believe kim jong-un is going to use this opportunity in order to uh, reach some sort of geographical geopolitical goals in his area as well i'm not going to say there's going to be a new korean war but potentially, from what we've seen, Kim Jong Un is not afraid of making these powerful, powerful statements against the South Korean and the U.S. governments, and you know, naturally hosting Choi Gu, you know, he's openly essentially proclaiming that look, he doesn't. Shroy Gu's a so-called declared war criminal in all of the EU and Western countries, right? So Shogu's like, there's Hitler 2.0 for these people. And so Kim Jong-un greets him with like the most lavish party and they celebrate, you know, the 50 years of the Korean Republic or whatever the celebration was. It was just an amazing time. And naturally, uh, you know, there's of course increases north Korea's stance on that you know on that multipolar end like north korea does want to be involved in this big orchestra moving into the future and i think kim jong-un is really uh i think he's quite fearless actually and naturally as as the world events uh move forward i think you know he's definitely seeing opportunities opening up for him and and i mean i'm sorry for the south koreans experiencing all this pressure and stress like naturally hearing these explosions on the island are, are quite you know especially on New Year's around Christmas time, it's pretty rough, but they have to understand that, you know, it's not like the North Koreans hate South Koreans, right, Conrad? It's not like a genetic or a racial difference. I think mostly they just understand the South Korean government is essentially U.S. controlled, and they just want these two people reunited, similar to how West and East Germans wanted reunion after the uh, after the fall of Berlin and after the building of the Berlin Wall. I think it's somewhat natural that these two countries simply want to be united, but not under the auspices of a U.S. hegemony. I think that's the conclusion. It's not that we love communism or we love Kim Jong Un or his you know, the legacy of his grand grandfather but it's it's just the idea that the people really need reunion similar to ukrainians and russians for that fact
0: i mean which way korean man you have two choices zog or juche i'm sorry you know it seems like it's, it's the two dramatic ends of the spectrum and you know you may wish you could go somewhere in between but that's those are your options and i think some people more and more people are probably going to start to lean towards juche which you know that's that's multipolarity for you but this whole thing relates of course to Obviously, the Taiwan-China Straits issue is going to be a issue with the U.S. and the broader World War III situation, but it directly relates as well to I mean, one of the direct ways that the U.S. is encountering this is with the IMEC versus the Belt and Road Initiative. And, of course, Ethiopia is a key player in China's Belt and Road Initiative. So I wouldn't be surprised if I, I think the U.S. gave some statement maybe in support of Somalia not recognizing Somaliland. can't remember the exact situation, but... I think the U.S. has pressured Ethiopia before, even in favor of Egypt, because we know they pay Egypt, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to be pro-Israel. So I could see how they could be like, "All right, we'll support you against Ethiopia." But the we know the uh, the IMEC corridor is the U.S. is a, a kind of answer to the Belt and Road Initiative, where they're trying to get you know all the shipping routes from India all the way up, you know, into uh, near the Persian Gulf or even through. Oman and other places, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, through rail lines through Saudi Arabia into Israel, the port of Haifa. And I think Israel even has some deals with China on Belt and Road Initiative as well. So it goes to show you, you know, the Jews playing both sides here. But the Belt and Road Initiative and the, the thing, a lot of it is India against China and India against Pakistan and the Muslim world. It's one of the keys is, is getting india strongly in the u.s trade and hopefully ultimately i guess for them a military corridor and arena against china and pakistan i think they view pakistan as a lost cause because they got rid of imran khan but even the you know government that the fake government that replaced him is still you know completely pro-palestine anti-israel so i think there's just no way pal uh there's no way pakistan ever is against is like against uh the Muslim world regarding Israel or the United States. So they kind of view that as a lost cause. But the whole, you know, the whole region, I guess, is is part of this economic battle with China and of course has its own political front as well. And I think, you know, as we see Israel come under threat, and we're going to talk about Trump later, again, this the fact that this timeline is coinciding so closely with this crazy 2024 election, I'm very afraid that you know, with the economic justifications for these new trade corridors, the religious justifications with, you know, Christians, Muslims, and Jews, with the geopolitical implications of World War III, and nukes, and intercontinental ballistic missiles, like, Israel's going to be threatened in some of these prophecies, you know, with the destruction of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and then the Antichrist, you know, some of that we might start seeing things resembling that coming to the fore, and I think all of this, that's why the show's called World War Now, because it's like, what does China have to do with that? Well, like I said, it does have to. There's prophecies that talk about you know China and Japan marching tens of millions of troops through, you know, the new Silk Road. I guess you know. So maybe the Belt and Road Initiative has to be completed before some of this World War III stuff can happen. You know, all of these economic, geographical, military, cultural, religious fronts. We think they're all relevant to the broader conversation about this worldwide conflict as we move into multipolarity as the world reenchant itself and as I think civilization returns to the fore. That's what, that's what we're watching here. But, Dimitri, unless you have anything else on the actual geopolitical World War III front, we also got to talk about some of the spiritual church news. And I think the most relevant being, we briefly discussed the persecution in Ukraine, but the most relevant being Mount Athos has banned Elpidoforos from their, from their area. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. And, you know, this is one of the, the white pills, I suppose, of uh, the Greco Orthodox world, because, frankly, from what we've heard over the last, you know, three, four years, h- almost half of the monasteries on Mount Alphos have actually either accepted Ukrainian schismatics, talking about literally unordained clergymen attending Mount Athos and actually co serving of some of the Athenite Archimandrites and priest monks, which is you know, bizarre and disrespectful and, frankly, shameful. But we've, you know, there's been a split opinion on Mount Athos. A lot of Russian, um, even Slavic, polish pilgrims stop going to mount alphos simply because you know their church you know at least the russian orthodox church in general has broken communion with a lot of these with the communal patriarch which is under mount alphos so there's essentially if you do visit mount alphos these days and you belong to a russian church you simply can't take communion and so a lot of russian priests and bishops have been actually promoting local pilgrimages rather than traveling to holy places like mount alphos simply because well if you travel there you simply can't partake of of the sacraments on that particular peninsula which is unfortunate you know but naturally this has been you know ongoing for a few years now but nevertheless it, it's really heartwarming to see the the elders the archimandrites the leaders of mount alphos stand up against the literal bishop right you have to consider elpidophoros is not just any sort of random cringe bishop who posts weird stuff online he's the almost the second most powerful figure if not third most powerful figure in the whole ecumenical patriarchate, and potentially the future ecumenical patriarch himself, right? And he leads the one of the richest archdioceses in the entire Greek world, if not in the United States. So Mount Athos essentially is saying no to money. They're saying no to the monetary powers of the world, and that's not an easy thing to do, especially when your entire peninsula lives off of donations, right? And you're talking to a guy who literally shakes hands with the biggest rabbis in New York. Archbishop El would offer So we you know, this is calling them out on a global, on a collective scale. They're saying, no, we will not tolerate weird, heretical behaviors from you. Even if some of the Avonite monks may be wrong on the Ukraine question, they're not, uh, you know, they're not compromising on this. They're not. And again, this is the beacon of again, one of the beacons of orthodoxy in the Greek orthodox world and in the Mediterranean world, I think, in total. And Mount Athos continuing to do that is just a great sign of our times, the fact that not all hope is lost and the fact that, well, we still have great spiritual leaders to look, look, look up to, I guess. And it's, it's, no, it's no surprise that so many Athenai monks over the last 50 years have risen up to sainthood as well from that particular peninsula. It means that spiritual life is still active and uh, you know, holy things can still be found in this world.
0: Yeah, again, it was all twenty of the monasteries unanimously declared that Archbishop Elpidophos, who's again the head of Goarch in America, he's not welcome to visit the Holy Mountain later this month. I guess there had been somewhat of a planned trip, and they were like, no, like this this guy doing these scandalous gay baptisms and speaking at the DNC is not is not invited. The uh, They wrote the letter to Patriarch Bartholomew. It said, By means of this letter, under our sacred common seal, we proceed on the occasion of the upcoming visit of His Eminence Archbishop Elpidophoros of America to the State of the Holy Mountain to submit before Your All Holiness the concern of our holy community with reference to the events during the rite of the mystery of baptism of the children of a quote-unquote same-sex couple, which took place at the sacred church of Panagia Fanaromeni in Vuliagmeni. We regret to have found... Through the published photographs of the Archbishop of America, after the end of the mystery, a wrong impression was created regarding the acceptance by the Church of the mystery of marriage by individuals of the, same, of the same sex, a message contrary to the doctrines and teachings of the Orthodox Church. This event contrary to the gospel teaching provokes the intense concern of our holy community. Therefore, your All Holiness, we beg your we beg your filially we beg you filially that you lend a listening ear to our concern on the extremely sensitive subject which concerns the integrity of our faith and orthodox traditions. Uh, Nevertheless, to your wise judgment, we ask your paternal blessings on the Feast of the Holy Twelve Days and the coming baptism of the Lord, with filial devotion, kissing your August right hand with profound reverence. And yeah, they said he's not welcome to, they're not going to welcome him, you know, the the abbots aren't going to be at Carias to meet him, and they're not going to celebrate the liturgy with him. So very, very very interesting development. And I think this is just so interesting regarding how it relates to the Roman Catholic thing, because this is... This is a controversy around him baptizing a baby. He, there was no marriage blessing. There was no ceremony. It was simply a photograph and an cre- uh, impression it created. Compare this to fiducio supplicans, which you can hear. You know, we had a good conversation with Michael Lofton on our last episode, if you want to hear, if you, if you hear some more about that. But right now in the Roman Catholic Church, we have, you know, the, uh, two gay men in a quote-unquote relationship or a couple or whatever it is can go to a Catholic priest and receive a blessing. And James Martin has already posted himself blessing two dudes holding hands in his church, and he's not going to get disciplined by the Vatican. So I, I think it's just important to highlight this difference because this photos baptism thing is like, you talk to a Roman Catholic about problems in their church from a honest, epistemologically rooted perspective, and they're like, uh, what about this picture? And it's like, to even try to compare these two things is absurd. Like, photos didn't actually perform any rite in theory that was incorrect, like he baptized a baby. But we understand that in the church, just the fact that you are granting that baptism to a baby to be raised by two gay men, like that's just such a problem. So like that, that, that's, a, that's an issue that is not even comparable to this fiducio supplicans issue, which again we're seeing totally split the church. Like, I mean, this is from LifeSite News. It seems that uh, the bishops of Angola and Tom, Argentina, Australia, Brazil... Hungary, the Ivory Coast, Cameroon, so all these African countries, Kazakhstan, I don't know how many Catholics are actually in Kazakhstan. You know, some of these smaller countries, of course, Kenya, Malawi, a whole lot of places across Africa have totally rejected, They've the bishops have totally banned their priests from basically obeying fiducia supplicans, so I don't know, does that make them in schism from the Pope? I don't really know. I mean, the papist ecclesiology seems to be totally malleable to the situation. But, of course, we have Peru, Poland. Uh, some of these big ones, though, we have Spain, uh, which has several bishops, which have condemned, I guess, the idea of the same-sex blessing. We have Switzerland. Uh, we have the UK, which had the co-fraternity of Catholic clergy, which is a no bishops but a big group of priests. And then, of course, uh, a big group of uh, fraternities in the USA, the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, the Diocese of South Dakota, and a few other places have... Totally rejected this. So there's an entire you can look at whole maps and color-coded maps saying who's on what side and who said what and you know how strongly they've condemned the Vatican. But it, it just goes to show that this is nothing but confusion and leads to papal lawyering and this sort of total. I, I mean, it's, none of this has to do with Jesus and the gospel. This is all a bunch of this is all just a bunch of weird politics where weird gay dudes have infiltrated the church, the you know the quote-unquote church, and have you know have really imposed an entirely alien agenda to what unfortunately is the largest by name at least like christian body in the world and of course this coupled with the restriction of the latin mass i really do encourage people to search out your local orthodox parish especially if you're in america because i can assure you that everything you've had in rome is actually fulfilled in in the orthodox church so i'll just i'll just put it that way i won't get too polemical of course but Unless you have anything else to say about that, Dimitri, I want to mention some of this this Georgia stuff. But I think, uh, actually, no, I want to say one other thing, was that uh, you probably have some comments on this, is a a Metropolitan Hilarion, who formerly of the external, uh, I guess, relations faction of the Russian Orthodox Church, now the Metropolitan of Hungary, in response to all of this RCC stuff, he said, I think, realistically speaking, we should not hope for any reunion between the Catholics and the Orthodox. Such steps are not going to bring us closer, but on the contrary, they will create new dividing lines. So it's really encouraging because he used to be one of the biggest, at least with Catholics, ecumenistically minded bishops in uh, the Russian Orthodox Church.
1: Yeah, I would say like one of the biggest, uh, one of the most hopeful things for the Russian Orthodox Church over the last two decades was essentially Patriarch Kirill, who was very focused on, I want to say like, E- Ecumenist relations in the early two so thousands began became really very very conservative around two thousand six two thousand seven I think under the influence of our favorite metropolitan of Crimea Tsikhan Shvifgunov and actually visiting Sretensky Monastery and all these other places and actually getting involved Patriarch Ural has become became very conservative but then that sort of uh you know. The, you know who who was the new liberal in the Russian church it was metropolitan Hilarion, right who became essentially the foreign minister of the Russian orthodox church and he was you know accused a lot of you know, by very conservative russians and orthodox people around the world for being an ecumenist for a very very long time all the way up until covid when he suddenly again spoke out i think it was I think he stated he was very in favor of vaccines and then he was suddenly uh, shipped off to Hungary and he was removed from his position as essentially the foreign minister of the church or, you know, the sort of master of foreign relations of the Russian Orthodox Church. And he was moved to Budapest where he serves to this day already um, going on to four years at this point. But Metropolitan, yeah, Metropolitan Hilarion, his position has changed. It was very, um, I would say, Uh, Philo-Latin, and now at this point he has, even in a few sermons and even his recent statement, he has essentially shown that, look, um, St. Mark of Ephesus was right. The Catholics are, in fact, in very deep heresy, and this heresy, and it's not just about theology at this point, it's about moral and ethical teaching as well, which, you know, this particular moral and ethical teaching has moved more and more left. It's moved away from the gospel, it's moved away from church, millennia-old church tradition, and essentially now it's just phasing in and out on, based on the whims of the, of the world. And we see this with Pope Francis. He's essentially more, uh, more dynamic and more fluid than even Vucic himself. Like he's, uh, in, on one hand, he's saying, okay, you can bless gay marriages. On the other hand, he's saying surrogacy is a huge sin. And on the other hand, again, he's not mentioning abortion as a fact, right? He's just kind of alluding to surrogacy causes abortion, therefore. And he's, you know, he's playing both sides here. Again, Pope Francis is this weird Jesuit type diplomat guy. You know, he, uh, besides him just being a Catholic bishop, he's also a very skilled um, diplomat, despite the fact that he speaks almost uh, only Italian, right? So it, it, there is this uh, particular aura to him. And again, he, these recent statements, he's trying to get back into the good books of the conservative Catholic people. And I think, let's not be fooled, guys. You guys have been humiliated, embarrassed many, many times by Pope Francis, who most likely really dislikes you. And as our friend Jay Dyer mentioned many times, he does, he hates the Latin trads. He doesn't like you guys. He doesn't like the fact that you like the traditional Latin mass. He's a big innovator. He's a modernist, right? And we look. We have modernists in the in the Greek and the Russian Orthodox Church, but even they change their positions. And at the moment, Archbishop Philpottoparis, who's one of nine hundred bishops, an entire peninsula of Orthodox monasteries can simply ban him by sending one letter to their patriarch and just say, "No, nah, this guy's not coming." There's no these people do not have authority outside of their you know, relative diocese. It's it's a very very old school church father-esque model which works in the orthodox church and of course this this assists us in fighting these local heresies which do come up in various places throughout the centuries so you just need to consider that whereas pope francis he's essentially the master and commander of the ship and he seems to be steering it wherever his um globalist masters indicate to him so i think that's just something you need to keep in mind so i'm completely with you conrad i think look we're not a religiously polemical show but we do need to keep in mind as the globalists move towards some new world order essentially order out of chaos once you know this cold war escalates into a hot war and it kind of dissolves itself if the roman catholic church survives this coming conflict i think the papacy will be one of those institutions which will bring in that new third temple antichrist type era i'm definitely thinking it'll be on that side which i think it's important to warn people about like do not trust some of these catholic cardinals do not trust this Pope, especially Pope Francis, who seems to be betraying conservatism and actual Christianity many times uh, just because you know he's told to do so, essentially, or perhaps he actually believes it. Perhaps he is an outright liberal and he likes gay rights and he likes all these alphabet community things. Who knows at this point?
0: That's a lot of great points. I think that's, yeah, I mean, we always talk about the Ukrainian Greek Catholics and the issue that they pose for a potential future union. And we talk about 2025 we're going to have Jim Jatris back on here in the next few weeks just to talk about everything, and he is very educated on all of those issues as well, especially regarding the ecumenical patriarchate. But, you know, you speak about the spreading tentacles of globalism. I think we have to mention uh, Georgia, give an update on that. They've been, you know, moved into EU candidate status. It seems that their governments will probably be making all sorts of gay, liberal reforms most likely to try to meet that candidacy status and get to where they need to go and meet all the goals that the commission sets up for them to meet to eventually become members of the eu but this was reported on ortho-christian and it led to some other stories i was reading about a bunch of priests uh, specifically father genadi gogelashvili and yakob mestvirdishvili these are great names they all burned EU flags and pictures of EU flags on printer paper and whatnot in solidarity, both just against EU candidacy in general, but specifically uh, in solidarity uh, with a young person, Lasha Sharukia, who they have been placed on pretrial detention for taking down and burning a European Union flag erected near Michgeta City Hall. And I guess what happened was this, uh, this young man, he followed the St. Ergabadzi path and decided to burn a big pagan idol in the middle of a city. We all know St. Gabriel burned the big flag picture of Lenin in Tbilisi. And it seems that he... Here's what happened. It says, uh, "Mtskheta City Hall raised flags in connection with receiving the EU candidate status. As a sign of protest, Shurukia burned the flag. No one was injured. The flag was worth 1,000 units of Georgian currency. Therefore, he was charged under the second part of Article 187. It basically says that they've now put him under detention and they're trying to basically extend his sentence to three to six years despite the fact that he's already paid this fine. So the culture war and the battle for globalist hegemony is totally underway in Georgia, and it's unfortunate that, you know, Russophobia is somewhat popular there, but... You know, again, I've spoken with with some some Georgian officials in the past, and I've been told that 50% of Georgians are secretly pro-Russian in some capacity. And I'm sure that's an exaggeration, but, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if anywhere 30 to 40% of Georgians are at the very least uh, more pro-Russian than they are pro-US Zog, especially based on the social issues. So we can hope for improvement in Russian-Georgian relations and that the Georgian people and the church people on the ground can resist this uh this new challenge because if you go full eu it's really it's really tough to get out just look at greece has it really gone well for greece i don't think so so i think that's a good lesson for georgians to to remember there
1: yeah and i think look there is all kinds of psyops at work here as well frankly you know georgian orthodox praise good on them for burning the you know the, the eu flag things like this it needs to continue there needs to be com- you know complete transparency on the orthodox stance on most of this eu nonsense because look the Ukrainian Orthodox Church kept silent on EU membership for a long time and it ended up turning into a Maidan in 2013, 2014. That's what the EU membership debate leads to. It's if the country doesn't go there, if say certain conservative politicians turn against the decision, the, the globalists use their proxies similar to how they use their, you know, Islamic proxies in Iraq to, you know, create ISIS and send suicide bombers in in more or less Western white countries or even a country like Georgia in a Caucasian country, they will send they were sending people to start these Maidans riots, things like that. So countries like Serbia, Georgia, they need to be very aware this EU choice potentially could lead to Maidans if you change your mind at the last minute. That's what, you know, the Ukrainian story has told us, I think. And clergymen really need to be aware of this, especially really in a heightened sense, because what does this eventually lead to? It leads to the the you know, the State Department, the EU creating a Mirror church in your particular country, right? Similar to Ukraine, and then they will declare the official church as conservative as it is, as a, as a sort of state department, you know, Russian Kremlin-run affiliated you know, body. I know this sounds really exaggerated, but the Orthodox Church in Serbia was accused of supporting war crimes as well back in the day in the nineties. So they will literally begin persecuting you off of false pretext, and they will lie about your local church. So, clergymen in Georgia, they just need to be aware of that. I'm not sure if any Georgian clergymen actually watch the show, but if they do. You know there are these concerns. I think they're incredibly real. So the position needs to be solid from the get go. There can't be any uh, waffling about because once the once the chips start falling and the dominoes start falling, it's hard to really stop them in this particular scenario. So it's very unfortunate. That like a few weeks weeks ago, we covered Patriarch Ilya of Georgia, the very venerable, the oldest patriarch actually, and very holy man. Um, you know, allegedly he signed a letter which stated that he's happy that the Georgia is joining the EU. I'm kind of paraphrasing the letter here, but he's he thinks it's a blessing. And well, honestly, that letter could have been faked. I'm still on that position here. And despite the fact that Patriarch Ilya did accuse Russia of leading hostilities against Ukraine in early 2022, and he says that Patriarch Kirill closed his eyes and mouth, you know, when the he essentially accused patriarch Kirill of supporting Putin in, during the special military operation in early 22, but naturally that's kind of a foreign policy conflict Georgia really wasn't you know, educated on, I would say. But nevertheless, I think just the Georgian position of the clergy I think is very important going into this. You know, Georgia is ripe for a Maidan, I think. It hasn't had a colored revolution in a little while, and it's potentially a Ukraine 2.0. And we've been warning about this for a while, but destabilization in that Caucasus region is very key because, again, it's one of those very important key trade routes. Armenia, Azerbaijan are also involved. They're also neighbors. So as you can imagine, things can get very violent quickly. And destabilization is exactly what the West wants at certain key moments going into the future, especially when it meets their ends.
0: Yeah, again, I think... Georgia will have to make such traumatic legislative compromises to the values of their people to truly, unless unless the EU just looks the other way and just decides to let them in anyway, which is always possible, but to actually meet the supposed criteria, I just think it would mobilize so many people. I mean, we see the mobilization that comes with every one of these pride parades. So I think it's something that's going to be really, really tough for them to actually legislatively meet forward. But you know, speaking of legislation and legal rulings, we got to talk about. I guess some people don't like us when we talk about this because everyone, everyone, most of the audience is Americans, so they hear about it all the time. But you know, we're an hour and fifteen minutes into the show, so we can talk about it. If you don't want to hear it, you can click away. But the whole Trump stuff is really, is really escalating. Of course, we've seen the Colorado Supreme Court backed off on kicking him off the ballot, but the main Secretary of State stepped in, removed him from the ballot, and now the Supreme Court. Has decided to take up the Fourteenth Amendment case against him as an insurrectionist and banning him from the ballot, and I have a strong feeling they're going to rule in Trump's favor. It's not a hundred percent, but there is the possibility I think of a nine-zero pro-Trump ruling. Maybe I don't know Ketanji Brown Jackson, whatever her name is, the new black lady will probably rule against him just on spite. But at the very least, there's a very large likelihood of a large majority ruling in favor of him because. The precedent this would set would just be crazy, and all these Republican states have pledged to basically hold Biden. The Secretary of State and these Republican states and attorneys general have basically pledged to hold Biden to the same standard. And considering he hasn't been convicted of a crime, just like Trump hasn't, quote-unquote, been convicted of insurrection, whatever that really means, they would then just ban Biden from the ballot on, like, regarding his China connections, regarding his Ukraine connections, regarding all these some any number of these other scandals that have broken in the past you know, four years. So it's all getting really, really, really interesting. And of course, these court cases, all the other court cases are still up in the air with Trump. There's, they're probably going to try to pull a conviction out of their hat in one of them, and in some capacity, try to get Trump in jail. At the very least, this is all keeping him tied up in the courts, keeping his money distracted, paying lawyers, and basically making it to where he can't Properly campaign to the fullest extent of his ability with all of his energy. That's even if none of it really works, and he still ends up kind of skirting all of the legal lawfare. It definitely is a big impediment and a speed bump he's going to have to overcome. But again, he's just so high in the polls that I've said this before, but like the likelihood of some disaster in Israel and then Trump sweeping in and some crazy electoral pseudo electoral legitimacy saving kind of action comes in and then also helps the Middle East. I mean, we're getting into total weird eschatological territory here. we got to start being careful.
1: Yeah, I think our um, interview and talk with Father John Whiteford is very important, especially now that we're seeing, again, school shootings come up, like all these weird provocations, you know, essentially false flag events occur in the news. And as we go into 2024, there's going to be new Black Lives Matter riots. There's going to be a new George Floyd. You best believe there's going to be new crises Thrown into the mix, so I think in your local Orthodox community, just be aware of who everybody is. You know, introduce yourself to people. Make sure there are no there are no feds involved as well. It's very important just to keep an eye out. And you know, if that's just most important is keep keep your Orthodox family safe. I think that's like the number one message going into 2024. Now that we're kind of already almost two weeks into the year, and I think you know towards the end of it, things are going to escalate very dramatically. So just keep everyone safe and always be aware. Like the government unfortunately is at the moment occupied by an anti-christian force i think we see this they're persecuting christians in ukraine they're closing their eyes on israeli bombardment of christians in the middle east they've they've literally created isis out of thin air which persecuted killed syrian bishops so i mean these people they literally support demonic forces around the world in fact they build them it's like uh, you know build a bear these people actually construct these uh transformers and then they activate them around the world there's golems essentially this is this is kabbalah but in the new age right so just consider this these people are dark magicians so um and they control us right so let's just be aware our government does not work for us at the moment yes the constitution does function decently well and i think we'll see in this ruling conrad that yes the if the supreme court justices actually open their eyes and read the constitution and actually apply legal reasoning here then trump will probably come out on top hopefully but if not then i think they're going to they're going to be um stirring the pot really 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 hard i'm just wondering where all of this will go especially all these epstein files again coming out at the same time Not, not sure if that's a distraction for anything but again The court actually, you know, redacted Epstein documents are coming out now and most of them actually don't involve Trump at all, which is interesting, right? Because you'd think, well, if Trump was involved, you know, frankly, it would be mentioned. But Trump's involvement with Epstein seems to have been somewhat limited. And I know this is probably news, as Conrad said, you guys probably hear about this a lot in the media or even the alternative right-wing media at the moment or left-wing media, whichever you follow. But it does seem but like... But hey, to get
0: a more, mm-hmm. to get maybe more entertaining, fuller perspective on it, we've got to talk about this as well. We're wrapping up the show. you got to listen to Brother Nathaniel's interview with with Alex Jones, which I think this will be our last story we talk about before we wrap up here, but Brother Nathaniel went on Alex Jones, and for the first time Alex Jones discussed, you know, the them boys, the Jewish question, with somebody without interrupting them every five seconds, which was interesting, an interesting development. And You know, many are saying that perhaps Alex Jones really gets it, he's a white hat, and he's Actually, you know, just platforming these voices and then pretending to debate and disagree, so that he himself remains free to platform these people and inject these ideas into the dialogue, which is very plausible to me. But at the same time, he also, I think, just understands where the winds are blowing and knows that he gets more views by talking about these questions because most of his audience already understands these things as true in reality. But look, we love Alex Jones. He's got a few issues. He sometimes is a little bit annoying and a bit blusterous, But you know, he's he's a legendary broadcaster. He's an American icon. So. We're always gonna love him, but Brother Nathaniel really brought the—he really brought it home. He didn't cross any weird lines. You know, some people were mad about what he said about Hitler, but he's definitely—he's an ex-Jew himself. He understands the importance of the Hitler golem, like the the war, almost worshipful way in which people hate Hitler. Like that is an idol in many ways, the same way as something you worship can be an idol. So he did a good job, I think, deconstructing that. And in general, it was just a very. A very solid interview, and I think it'll do a lot to bring people, especially people that are truth-oriented and kind of looking at how to deal with the world that's run by these people and, you know, really controlled in a way that brings the spiritual realm to light, I guess. It'll think, I think it'll get them interested in orthodoxy, which is, which is a really positive thing
1: yeah the brother nathaniel interview was sensational i think it brought a lot of people who were on the fence in terms of religion either too skeptical of Protestantism, catholicism to really consider christianity but finally they've begun seeing a new side of orthodox christianity which is well we're not afraid to actually tell the truth we have a church tradition going back thousands of years it's completely uncompromised in any capacity and look, we see world events like me and Conrad. We speak about geopolitics, the, the political political things. With, through an orthodox perspective, it's very very possible. And the world, unfortunately, is so politicized. Alex's Alex Jones's show is essentially a political slash conspiracy show. So that audience finally sees a new Christian perspective on things, given by Brother Nathaniel. I think it's just incredibly positive. And those guys, those people calling him a provocateur and you know writing letters to his bishop, you guys are just disgraceful. I think stop with that behavior. Naturally, Brother Nathaniel, he needs to be supported. He's a he's a real life fool for Christ. He's acting he's acting as a spokesperson, not just for his local community, but in a, in a way, he's speaking about subjects which a lot of other clergymen and lady actually cannot speak about because it will destroy their livelihoods and will destroy their careers. In fact, it will you know, most likely could even lead to their physical deaths here on earth. You know, and uh, it's a really dangerous subject, right? I think I made this quite clear. We we've posted on Twitter a lot about this, but. Yeah, kudos to Alex Jones for actually having an Orthodox Christian out to who can speak about this, and not everybody can, but Brother Nathaniel can, and so I think it's good that he's given an opportunity and a platform to do so, at least as an Orthodox Christian monk.
0: And Brother Nathaniel, technically Father Nathaniel, for many years now he's been a Rassophore monk, tonsured by Archbishop Gabriel, you know, who may come into the picture soon here, but he still goes by Brother Nathaniel. That's kind of been his moniker online that he's just decided to stick with, but. Yeah, it really was a monumental interview. He talks a lot about the Trump thing as well and why, you know, I guess the Jews are so afraid of Trump. And it's because you know they see the nationalism they see like like brother nathaniel says the white faces of his supporters and he knows that that's a group of people that if trump the leader or if a group of them really decide to realize you know who's really in charge that you know they could turn on them boys and that's a big threat to them so i mean he really breaks down the the nature of why they act the way they do and are for what they're specifically afraid of and why they hate trump despite the fact that trump for all intents and purposes is highly philo-semitic but i think this has been a great show we're going to be You know, 2024, we're back into this. We made some predictions, so check out that Ether Hour. But, yeah, Dimitri, do you have any final, uh, any stories, anything that we want to leave the people with before we send everybody off and do the plugs?
1: the only thing was like again you know keep, keep keep your prayers out for the ukrainian orthodox church still being persecuted there was a really bizarre story from actually the place where Elder of donbass the future saint actually was one of the ukrainian saints who gave many of the prophecies about ukraine's future to us through his verbal instructions to the to the monks of the monastery his church was actually long-range shot by ukrainian soldiers unfortunately uh the um it's 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 a long name of the church right bear with me it's it's dedicated to one feast day and two saints. It's the Holy Dormition St. Nicholas St. Basil Church. It's a modest, it's a small skeet type monastery construction, but dedicated to one feast day and two saints. And yeah, there's a giant golden cross on top of the church and Ukrainians were shooting at it from a distance just recently, literally in the last week. And that was reported by one of the major priests of Kyerson Father Gennadius, which you know, this is a church in the Donetsk Oblast. So again, all these churches in the Donetsk Oblast. when Russia does liberate these areas, will be rebuilt and will be reconstructed, similar to how churches were rebuilt in Russia in the 90s after the Bolshevik persecution. So very similar powers at play and very similar rebuilding processes will take place The you know, Christians will rise again. And, you know, even though our temples may be destroyed and desecrated, we always come out on top in the end. Again, um, you know, we are for the kingdom of heaven. So let's just uh, pray for those people experiencing persecution. May God grant them strength. And I think moving into 2024, hopefully their situation improves.
0: Yeah, and of course, pray for the Christians in Gaza. Of course, we mentioned the attacks and desecrations on the Christmas trees in the West Bank. And of course, we've talked about the destruction of Gaza. Christmas in Gaza for the Christians there was not... Probably anywhere near as cozy or delightful as your Christmas that you celebrated, you World War Now listeners, so keep them all in your prayers, of course, and uh, with all of that, uh, worldwarnow.co, you'll hear everything, that's the World War Now substack, uh, we have links, we'll probably have some more below to support you know, the Christians in Gaza through the uh, Holy Order of St. George, and we're probably going to be talking to some members of that order soon on the show, so... Uh, Be sure to stay tuned for that. But yeah, worldwarnow.co, worldwarnow.substack.com, both redirect to the same place. That's where you can find us for everything. Be sure to get behind the paywall. Uh, You you can pay monthly, you can pay yearly, you can do the free trial. And you get all episodes of Ether Hour at this point. It's, I think, 27-plus episodes. You know, we go into all sorts of fantastic topics about pogroms, Zionism. Uh, We talk about history of all sorts of czars, all of the Romanovs, the potential sainthood. Of all sorts of characters and czars and whatnot. And we've got some major big shows coming up. So be sure to get behind the paywall. It really supports us, helps us keep these weekly World War Now episodes free and give you some great info behind the scenes to help build your broader worldview and understanding. So again, thank you to all the supporters as well already. We couldn't do this without you. But with all of that, World War Now underscore on Twitter. You can find us there. We're growing really fast. A lot of great posts. World War Now Telly on Telegram another great place where we're never going to get censored. It's always always a great backup. Follow me on Twitter or X at Rad. Follow Dimitri at OCanonist. Be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, World War Now. Get us up there. Uh, follow us on Rumble, World War Now as well. And yeah, Substack again, worldwarnow.co, worldwarnow.substack.com. That's our home base, so get on the email list. You'll get every episode in your email inbox, which is great and convenient. And make a Substack account. You can leave comments and even ask questions for our upcoming supporter Q&A. So if you get behind the paywall, you can ask us questions. We do those once a month. So be sure to get behind the paywall. Like I said, it really helps us out. But with all of that, thank you so much for listening, everybody. Dimitri, send us off.
1: Yeah, thank you guys for the support. And 2024, let's let's get off to a good start. Merry Christmas and, uh, you know, Happy Feast Day of Theophany to all of you on the new calendar. You know, you know I love the start of the year because you have all these Feast days and you're you know, it's a real blast. I think January is a great month. So... Let's go. And we have some great interviews lined up for you guys in the coming months. I think uh, we'll see some amazing content in the first period of this year. So I hope you guys have a great year ahead of you. Thank you.